We've really been examining different encounters people have had with the Lord Jesus during his earthly life. And I think what you've seen thus far is that these accounts have a way of blurring with our present. So their stories actually start blurring with our stories. The past and the present start to meld. And that's the way the Bible works. I can remember back in the early 2000s, I was leading a a big picture Bible study with some international students at NC State University and two Chinese ladies were there that day. And one of them was just having a hard time understanding the story of the Tower of Babel when God visited humanity in judgment and confused their languages. And the other student understood what was going on and she just looked at the group and she started speaking in, in Chinese acting like we should all understand what she's saying. She was illustrating this fact that when God visited humanity in judgment on that day at the Tower of Babel, it had blended and blurred with our present day in that study. She knew it was playing out right among us at that time. And this encounter in Mark chapter 2 is no different. The characters of this story you're going to find actually start to blur with our own stories. But this story from the past doesn't just blur with our present. It actually blurs with our future. It functions like a spoiler alert. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to do what our brother Jim from Atlanta or Daniel Rindstrom did last week with Endgame when he ruined that for many of you. This spoiler alert is not about a movie. It's about your future. Mark chapter 2 introduces us to the man, Jesus Christ, and we will encounter him again. And this is the type of spoiler that doesn't disappoint and kind of lead to a boring rest of the story. This is the type of spoiler that actually infuses significance in the day-to-day of our lives. The Jesus we encounter through his word today, we will meet again, faith family. So let's read Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12, and see him for who he is. When he entered, when Jesus entered Capernaum again, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, not his own home, the home of Peter and Andrew from chapter 1. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's... He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth To forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. And as a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. 
Now what stands out in this story is not only the the vivid details that Mark illumines our minds with, but it also this, this simple characterization that he uses. No one's named in the story but Jesus, so the spotlight stays on him. We don't know why the paralytic is paralyzed. Was he paralyzed from birth? Was he a victim of a crime? Was he a, a victim of his own folly and ended up being paralyzed? We're even only given one detail about the four presumably men that carry him to Jesus. And in terms of the action, all we know is that this man was paralyzed and this, these four guys brought him to Jesus. But the, the paralytic's dilemma is eclipsed by another tension over Jesus' identity. So Jesus resolves the tension of the paralytic's dilemma, but hear me, this tension comes with force upon us as readers and other characters in the story. How will we respond to this revelation of who Jesus Christ really is? We are going to unpack this encounter with Jesus through the lens of what Jesus senses, what Jesus does, and who Jesus is. First, let's look at what Jesus senses. He's going to see something, he's going to perceive something, and he's going to hear something. The first thing Jesus sees in this narrative is he sees faith. Look in verse 5 with us, with me. Mark has us watching all the details unfold outside the house while Jesus is teaching away inside the house. Verse 5, though, is the first time we are introduced to Jesus' perspective. Seeing their faith, Jesus moves in to do a miracle. Now, their faith probably is applicable both to the paralytic and the four people who were carrying him to Jesus. But by filling out these details, Mark attaches this idea to Jesus' recognition of faith. So Mark wants us to see relentless pursuing accompanying Jesus' acknowledgement of faith. This group of five had every reason to stop short of Jesus. I mean, the man couldn't walk, so they had to carry him. The crowd jammed the doorway, so they had to find another way. The roof itself presented an obstacle, so they had to dig through it. And then they even had to lower this paralytic to Jesus once they dug the roof away. Now, this is not a roof like an A-frame we see all over Eagle Point right now. This is uh, a, a clay structure that was more like another floor that they could dig through. And Luke tells us that they actually had to remove tile to get him through. But Mark wants our eyes on all these barriers they had to overcome in order to get to Jesus. And Jesus looks at their faith. All these barriers existed, yet they refused to go home and try again another day. Faith simply has to get to Jesus. True faith settles for nothing less than Jesus. A.W. Tozer once wrote that for true faith, it is God or total collapse. There's no backup plans. There's no secondary insurance policies for true faith. It is the recognition of our own helplessness and Jesus' resourcefulness that drove these men to Jesus that day. These men get it. Only Jesus would do. Jesus sees their faith and their faith becomes this platform for the miracle, but what Jesus does next actually catches us off guard. If we're honest, it's not the initial miracle that we expect. The tension we feel as the reader and the thing to which Jesus addresses himself, they don't line up. They don't match. 
Upon seeing their faith, look in your word, verse 5. He told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This brings me to the second thing that Jesus senses. Jesus senses danger. Secondly, Jesus senses danger. What do we expect as readers of the story? Son, get up and walk. But Jesus goes deeper than his most immediate or apparent need. Son, your sins are forgiven. Sins is plural. This paralytic hadn't sinned just one time. He had sinned multiple times. Again, we don't know if he was born that way or if he was a victim or because of his own folly he ended up paralyzed. But what we know is he has a problem and Jesus fixates not on his physical condition but his spiritual condition. Jesus senses that this man is in danger not because of his physical condition but because he deserves condemnation before a holy God because he is a sinner. The mat was not this man's biggest threat meeting his maker with unforgiven sins Jesus sensed was his biggest danger and here is what Jesus in a summary form basically sees at that moment unforgiven sins are more dangerous than immovable body parts unforgiven sins are more dangerous than immovable body parts so Jesus boldly declares son your sins are forgiven now Jesus doesn't do this every time he meets Uh, physical need in the gospels but we see from the big story of each gospel account that this was indeed Jesus's main agenda in his life and ministry or else the cross and resurrection make no sense he didn't come to address people's earthly sickness alone he came to meet a need because what threatens us is something of eternal significance and it's the spiritual sickness that threatens us all I think what Jesus does in this narrative is really helpfully summarized by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert in their great book, What is the Mission of the Church? They conclude that the church should maintain, we could do a lot of good in the world, but that the church should maintain our priority on proclaiming the only way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God through Jesus Christ. That we need to maintain our laser focus on that mission. And they give two reasons. They say there's something worse than death. Namely, it's the judgment of God. And there's something better than human flourishing. Namely, the enjoyment of the glory of God forever and ever. The church alone has been entrusted with this message about Jesus that brings people into that saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in this instance, rescues this man from something worse than the earthly suffering. And gave him something more than earthly satisfaction and freedom. Jesus forgave him of his sins and reconciled him to God. Now, for some in this room, I know that you suffer with chronic pain, and it's a daily struggle. And hear this as well. Just because Jesus met this man's deepest eternal need does not mean that he's indifferent to his earthly need or your earthly need. I love the tender recognition of Jesus. He doesn't just, as he's teaching, just, oh, throw sins, your sins are forgiven, and just move on teaching. No, he directly and tenderly addresses this paralyzed man, son. Now, we don't know if that paralyzed man was facing him or facing the other direction or in some corner near him or still in the air as he's being lowered down, right? We don't know where he is, but Jesus knows where he is. 
Jesus acknowledges him, son, if you suffer with chronic pain, hear the direct and tender address of Jesus this morning. Son, daughter, I see you. And think of that, the effect that that pain is having actually on your faith. It's purifying your faith from makeshift substitutes. For you, it's God or total collapse. And that's actually a blessing because you are saved from this lie that we are enough. You have no backup plans beyond Jesus. And friends, that is a good place to be, even though it might be a hard place to be. Joni Erickson Tata, who herself is paralyzed from her shoulders down, but such a, a prolific writer, said it well. She said, maybe the truly handicapped people are the ones who don't need God as much. Hear the tender recognition of Jesus this morning, son, daughter. The third thing that Jesus senses is Jesus overhears the inner objections of the scribes. Look in verse 6 with me. Jesus overhears the inner objections of the scribes. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this when he said, Sons, your sin, son, your sins are forgiven? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking like this within your hearts? Notice, notice carefully, Jesus doesn't hear them murmuring among themselves. They're inside the room and Jesus climbs into their heart and overhears their running commentary on his action with the paralytic. Now, before we get to their actual objection, stop for a moment and just realize what it means to have an encounter with Jesus. To encounter the Jesus of the Bible is to be completely exposed before Jesus. Everything is open and laid before him. Everything about us, an open book before Jesus. We are known and exposed to the all-seeing gaze of Jesus. Have you ever felt totally exposed? I remember the second sermon I ever preached was at my small little home church in North Carolina. And the pastor wasn't in town. So after the sermon, we would, uh, the pastor normally would go down front and wait. And we would have an invitation time. Maybe you've been at a church like this. And people would come up and they would want to talk. And maybe you would pray with them. And so I didn't expect much that morning. So I preached on Ephesians 4, make my way down there. We're singing a hymn. And here comes Renee out of the pew to come and talk with me. And so she begins just pouring her heart out to me of her heart and her struggles with the sermon I had just preached. And I begin to pray for her. And then it hits me that my lapel microphone that used to sit right here, right at Renee's height, is, is still on. Rookie mistake. And so the whole church heard Renee's confession. But as I've thought about this text, I actually think that might be a grace for us all. What if we were to live as open and honest as Jesus sees us? Before Jesus, church, the microphone is always on, not just with what we communicate verbally, but what we communicate internally. Jesus sees what's coming out of our mouth and what's that running commentary in our hearts. We are open, exposed before him. But look at their accusation against Jesus. The scribes knew the staggering impact of what Jesus claimed to do when he declared forgiveness of sins. Notice, Jesus doesn't say to the paralytic, hey, have your friends take you to the temple and the priest will do his thing and you can be forgiven. Jesus doesn't say to him, the Lord forgives your sins. 
Like Nathan told David when David was caught in in, with Bathsheba in adultery and murder. He doesn't say, I'll pray for you and perhaps God might show mercy on you and you might be forgiven. No, right then and there, Jesus says to him, direct address, son, your sins are forgiven. He says, what I say right here, right now, God says, forgiven. My verdict on earth is reflective of the verdict in heaven. You are forgiven. And the scribes have this, this internal kind of, what, what, what in the world? The immediately conflict comes because they're calling a spade a spade. He's, he's blaspheming. He's putting his, himself in the place of the one God. He's claiming to be God. Just who does this guy think he is? Now let's look at what Jesus does. On your outline there, Jesus flexes to prove he has divine authority to forgive sin. Jesus flexes in order to prove he has divine authority to forgive sins. Jesus overheard them, even though they hadn't voiced a word. Somehow Mark doesn't say they were shocked at this reality. But he ups the ante on their accusation. Jesus does not hear the charge of blasphemy and do the politician thing and retreat and tiptoe backwards from that implication. He doesn't back down. Jesus claimed the authority reserved for God alone to forgive sin, and he owns it here. He presses in on them so they might deal with the staggering implications of his identity. And Jesus sets up a scenario for them to consider. So verse 9, look with me. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? What's easier? Answer, words come easy. It's harder to do the miracle that can be seen right then and there. An invisible miracle is easy to say that it's been accomplished, but if that guy walks out of that room, that forces them to make a decision. Either he is being blasphemous and taking the place of God, or we need to bow down and worship him. Is this guy a clown, or is he the creator? So he forces the issue and brings it out into the light so that we will wrestle with his identity and his authority. So if I make the claim right now that we have Alexa hooked up to our system in our home, our electrical system, and I I make the claim that I'm about to turn the lights off at my house. So I'm going to say, Alexa, turn off the lights in Chelsea at my house. No one of you knows if that happened, my snake knows, right? We've got all these animals in our house. A gecko knows, a dog knows. We've got Noah's Ark going on at the Bugner's home. So they all know if my claim was correct that we have Alexa hooked up to the system. But if I make the claim that the church's system is, is connected to Alexa, that's verifiable by all of you because I'll say, Alexa, turn off the lights and nothing happens. So you, now you know my claim is Worthless. It's empty words. I'm telling the truth or lying because right now, here in this moment, you can test my integrity and my authority. So this is what Jesus does. He rolls up his sleeves and he says, all right, I take on your charge. And look what he says in verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. And and Mark loves this next word. Immediately what happens, the paralytic got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. 
What does Jesus do? He forces the issue out into the open, and then he flexes to show them his authority transcends, not just that arena, but also heaven. He does the harder miracle in the moment to prove his words about forgiveness is true. So Jesus does the visible, verifiable miracle to prove he has authority to do the invisible miracle and show mercy to a sinner and forgive him of his sins. Jesus even corners them in in multiple ways here to realize the staggering implications of his identity. Look at the difference between verse 5, son, your sins are forgiven, and in verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He changed from the passive to the active. He's squeezing out any room to discredit his claim. Your sins are forgiven could leave open the possibility that someone else did the action because it's passive. It leaves open this, this Alexa element to act on my lights at home. But he says, no, no, no. Here's where I'm going with this. I have authority to forgive sins. No Alexa needed. I am Alexa, basically, is what he's saying. Or better yet, I am Alabama power that governs whether the lights come on or off. He switches to the active to put himself front and center as the actor. And then he even backs him further in to realize the implications of this moment when he says in verse 10, he has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's not talking about some distant realm out there in Chelsea or in, up in heaven. He's talking about here. Now, on earth, I am declaring that I have this authority to forgive sins. Right here, right now, he's saying, I have the gavel of the courtroom of heaven. Even the language he uses, he speaks of himself in the third person view. He calls himself the son of man. Now this could have been just a run of the mill identification like me or I in Aramaic. But this is a picture of the son of man that was predicted in the prophet Daniel. This is the last days. And this is the spoiler alert for all of us in this room. We will meet this son of man. Look what Daniel 7 tells us about what's going to come our way when he comes again. Daniel 7, 12, it'll be up on the screen. The court was convened and the books were opened. And suddenly one like the Son of Man, there it is, Son of Man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. And this is Jesus' mic drop moment if we've ever seen one. I mean, this would send chills up those scribes spine because they realize he is stepping into the spotlight of exactly what Daniel 7 predicted. That guy, that coming king who will judge the world and all the nations would bow before him, Jesus is owning up to be that guy. That guy is claiming to be God. And Jesus flexes right here in this story in order to prove that he has divine authority to forgive sins. That home in Capernaum had become the courtroom of heaven. He does the harder miracle, the visible miracle, in order to convince us of his ability to secure forgiveness. It's not empty words by the Lord Jesus. I mean, think about it. When that man picks up his mat and walks out of that house, that man was forgiven of his sins seconds earlier. No one leaves that house Avoiding the undeniable conclusion that Jesus is not only claiming to be God, listen to this, 
but convincing us he is God. And as God, he is wielding his authority to forgive sins. Mark even ends the narrative with the result that the people are giving glory to God for what Jesus is doing on earth. Now, internally, we might not be accusing and questioning Jesus of blasphemy in our hearts, but I think we struggle to recognize Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Christian, if you are united to Christ by faith in him, when Jesus says forgiven, there's a period at the end of that sentence. Forgiven. Let this mat, man's mat be just a comfort to you. He walked out of that house that day and went home, a free man from that mat. The degree to which he was free from that mat is the degree to which you are free from your sins and the punishment they deserve. I mean, can you imagine that mat? It probably had indentions of where he used to lay or an outline of, of his body where he used to sweat on hot days. You think he ever used it again? No way. Maybe he kept it in the corner to gather dust just to remember the mercy of God. But he never crawled back onto it. Then why do we keep revisiting our sins as if Jesus does not have authority to forgive them? Why keep groveling back to them and living like we were in our former condition? I remember when I started this role as your global pastor... That those first few months, I, Satan was just in my mind, reminding me of sins I had done back in high school and accusing and accusing and accusing. And I was listening to one of Daniel Rindstrom's former oldies, but it's a goodie. It's called Sweet Substitution. And he talks about how no condemnation now I dread. And that was such a beautiful picture because I stopped listening to the accusations of the devil and I started speaking under the authority of Jesus, the truth of the gospel. No, put your former sins, Christian, away under the authority of Jesus. Friends, if you're not a Christian, you might be asking yourself, what's the big deal about Jesus? You may have questions about why we believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. And yes, we do believe that. Jesus is the only way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. It's only through him. That's not because we have the corner of truth or because we're arrogant. It's because we're under authority. I don't know if you saw this week, but Roy McIlroy, a professional golfer, was at a tournament. He and his caddy were right there at his bag. And this fan steps over into and grabs his six, six iron out of the bag and just walks over casually and takes a swing with it. And that fan was quickly escorted. Because that fan didn't have jurisdiction over Rory McIlroy's back, right? When we say Jesus is the only way to heaven, we're saying we don't have jurisdiction in the courtroom of heaven. You might say the audacity of the church to say such a thing. And we might say we don't have any authority to say anything else. Jesus has authority in the courtroom of heaven. That's not our jurisdiction. Because Jesus is, this is our third part, and we're going to meditate on who Jesus is. He is God. Jesus is God. When Jesus' opponents pull out the charge of blasphemy in the book of Mark, Jesus doesn't let that go underneath the surface. Mark loves to end stories, little snapshots of Jesus' authority, 
with cliffhangers to let us wrestle with, are we going to say he's God? Like, who is this guy that the wind and seas obey him? And then Mark will move over to another scene. But we'll be left wrestling with, is he God or is he not? But when Jesus' accusers pull out blasphemy, Mark kind of puts away the elusive strategy. He, he, he doesn't do the Clark Kent thing, right? Where Clark Kent would kind of hide his identity for a season. As Superman, he'd come out, he'd go get changed in the phone booth, right? Mark, Mark doesn't do that strategy. When they say blasphemy, Jesus starts unbuttoning his shirt and says, yeah, I'll take on that charge. Here in chapter 2, he takes it on and proves that he is God. And in Mark chapter 15, blasphemy comes back up at his last trial scene. And Jesus says basically that he would rather spill his blood than anyone mistake his identity. He is God. He is God. We either worship him or we condemn him. There's no middle ground. This miracle in Capernaum is, is pressing the issue out into the open so you and I might decide, is he God or is he not? He is God. That man walked out of that room. Secondly, Jesus is the son of man who makes repentance relief. Jesus is the son of man who makes repentance relief. Now, I want you to be honest with me. When I told that story earlier of being exposed in the eyes of Jesus and that Jesus is the, the son of man who presides over the heavenly courtroom who has now come to earth, what did your soul do? Was your first impulse retreat? Fear, we run from his exposing eyes. For some reason, this vision of Jesus doesn't come across as good news to us. But why are we like this? Or how about the word repent? Jesus talks about this word repentance, turning from our sin and turning to him as our Savior. Jesus is clear this is the appropriate expression to realizing he is God. Mark 1.15, just listen to these words. Jesus says, this is good news. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So when you hear the word repent, do you, do you see it as relief or as a burden? Are you inclined to obey or resistant to Jesus? I think we've got this wrong picture of who Jesus is in our minds that complicates our repentance and our joy over seeing him in this light. I've been listening to the book of Mark when I run recently and uh, just letting it kind of marinate for this sermon. And I was getting to Mark chapter 14 and 15 when Jesus is nearing the cross last week uh, in my neighborhood. And as I'm there with my AirPods in, I'm just in my own little world. Uh, and all of a sudden, this dog darts out of some neighbor's yard, and he comes at me like a ferocious animal I have never seen. I mean, I, teeth were, I mean, he's barking, he's chasing me down. We do a couple loops, because I think he, he just, it's, this guy wants to just chew me up, spit me out, leave me a mangled mess on the side of the road in my neighborhood. And finally, the neighbors come out, get him calmed down. I'm not going to tell you how big the dog was, because that might ruin the, the impact of the story. But, um... <laughs> He's, he, he wasn't a puppy, let me just say that. But I think we have this image in our mind that Jesus is after us like that dog. We inwardly believe his attentions are a lot like that vicious beast, wanting to take us down so we run from him. We tell him, stop, don't, don't take away that thing, right? And when he says repent, we, he really wants, 
we think he really wants to take something away from us. But what if there's another way to see him? Let Mark persuade your soul this morning. Watch the key verse about this son of man who wields his authority in the book of Mark. That he isn't out to get us. He is not out to take us down. Look on the screen at Mark 10, 45. For even the son of man. This is shocking. Even, Mark adds, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For even the son of man, this king who reigns over the courtroom of heaven, did not come to earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The son of man exercises his authority to proclaim forgiveness in chapter 2 and to provide forgiveness in chapter 15 through the cross and the resurrection. He came to give his life away, not take yours away. You see, what happened in that house in Capernaum in chapter 2 is the whole book of Mark flipped on its head. The easier thing to proclaim in that crowded room, namely the forgiveness of sins, would become the hardest thing to provide as the narrative continues. Even the words about the realm in which Jesus exercises his authority when he says, on the earth, pick up this weightier force later in Mark chapter 14 when, when Jesus buckles under the weight of the impending doom of the cross and the judgment of God and he falls on the earth praying in the garden of Gethsemane. Those words in Capernaum would literally cost him everything on the cross. So when you see Jesus flexing in Mark chapter 2 to do the easier miracle <laughs> with his words, look at him flexing in Mark 14 and 15 at the cross to finish his mission and give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, we, we have that phrase, right, in English, easier said than done. Easier said in Mark 2, done, Mark 14 and 15. He did them both. So don't let the son of man language, please, turn you away from Jesus. Let it woo you. Run to him, not from him. And don't let repentance lose its joy. It's good news to be stripped of everything that competes with Jesus in your hearts. And don't let it be under this guise of insecurity. Feel the weight of Jesus' authority driving you to live honestly with hope before him. Because if repentance happens in an atmosphere of insecurity, you know what's going to happen? Your repentance is only going to be skin deep. Why? Because you'll be afraid of exposure. You're, you'll be afraid to face up to how deep your sin really is because of this nagging insecurity. Will Jesus be enough for me at that next dimension of my depravity? The deeper your sin runs, friends, it's still under the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. He has authority at the surface level. He has authority at the next level and the next level and the next level and the next level. So we can repent with full honesty and openness before him and not be crushed by our depravity, but walk out free like this paralytic. 
that man's match was, mat was no match for Jesus' authority on that day, nor is your sin for his mercy. Fully known and fully forgiven. That's our story, Christians. Fully known and fully forgiven under the weight of Jesus' declaration. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Period. The Son of Man. This, this figure in the book of Mark makes repentance a great relief. Because we end up in his hands. We run to him, not from him. His nature is not out to get us, but out to give his life for us. This makes submission to him still hard at times, but the the most satisfying aspect of the Christian life. For the Son of Man came to serve. Lastly, before we conclude, I want us to look to the future. This is a spoiler alert. You have seen Jesus as the son of man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. Well, he reigns in heaven now with that same authority. And lastly, we will encounter him. Encounters with Jesus, this Jesus, the son of man, is foreshadowing a future encounter we will have with Jesus, the same son of man. So you know what today feels like? It's a spoiler alert, but on that day, it's going to be deja vu. Because on July 11th, 2021, you came in contact. You encountered the Son of Man, and you will meet him again. And just as he had authority that day in that house in Capernaum, he holds sway in the heavenly courtroom. Look to him. Look to him, church. And let's live for him, for his glory.